Today on Inside the Ropes, the special roundtable we've promised about the future of Australian golf. A cast of thousands is ready and waiting. Let's go. You're listening to Inside the Ropes, Australia's must-listen-to golf show with exclusive content from both home and abroad. Subscribe through your favourite podcast app or listen at golf.org.au. G'day, everybody. Welcome to a special, a very special edition of Inside the Ropes. And we're having a time of pause in this uh, crazy, crazy world of ours. And before we get stuck back into the weekly cut and thrust, we've been promising to do this sort of round table think tank. What do we want golf to look like in Australia when we come out of this thing? So we're going to throw a whole lot of ideas into the mix and see which stick, what the good ones are and what might be part of golf um, going forward, for want of a better phrase here in Australia. Um, Hazy, have I sort of got that... Somewhere near right, do you reckon, or yeah, you want to add? No, I think that's right, Andy. And um, thanks for um, you know trying to steer this ship because it's going to be an interesting hour or so here. Um, I think we're going to try and talk to as many um, key people in the industry as we can. Um, obviously, we could probably do this all day, but um, we've got some good names coming up here in the next little hour, all to throw in there to Bobsworth and see where we land up. So what we'll, what we'll do is we'll throw all of these things out and then we'll, we'll obviously put the podcast out and we welcome all kinds of, yeah, love that idea, hate that idea. Let us know what you think from a, um, on a you know, social media perspective or if you happen to bump into us or give Hazy a call or whatever you like. Um, let us know what you think of the ideas. And uh, in a perfect world, if, if golf does go through a serious kind of reform here in Australia, who knows, maybe some of these ideas can be put up on the butcher's paper uh, when we finally sit down and go, right, what do we want this thing to look like? I reckon Mike Clayton will have a thousand. Well, I don't know how many ideas he'll have. And I'm not sure they'll come from a myriad of different directions, I reckon. But he's here, and it wouldn't be uh, a show like this on Inside the Ropes without him. Hello, Clates. Hello, Andy. Good to see you. Um, you well? You good? I'm good, yeah. It's kind of a blurry day outside. We're at the beach house, which is increasingly looking like it might be a real house. So. You need to come and live to the Sandy down down at Sandra's Beach. It's beautiful down here. Come on. I'll get my wife. Give, I'll give. I'll get. I'll get. Give my wife your number, and you can kind of convince her for us if you wouldn't mind. Golf course uh, down the road. Brewery down the road. Uh, it's and got all lay across the street. It's all happening. Ticks every box, I reckon. Hello, Blake. Martin Blake's here. Hello, Hi. Andy. Hello, guys. <laughs> You're well. I'm playing at Sandy. I'm very good. I'm playing a lot of golf because I don't have a lot of work to do at the moment, and. Uh, I'm playing at Sandra's on Friday, Clates, uh, which I haven't done for a while. And I'm just getting over the fact that I three-putted the last at Long Island yesterday. And when I looked at the leaderboard, which you can do on those apps nowadays, uh, on my way home, I realised that the first of those three putts was to win the comp <laughs> at Long Island. Like the fun. second would have got me into a, you know, I might have been in a countback. And the third was a tap-in, which meant that I finished seventh. We can start with our reform there. Long Island should be in the... It would be a better course than it is. There you go. It's really good, but it could be even better. Make Long Island great again. Yeah. <laughs> there's a couple of trees I'd like you to deal with there, Clays. There are a few on the fourth and fifth holes, but yeah, that's a tremendous course. It could be could be as good as the two next door at Peninsula. Yeah. Will, we have, will, uh, here's a, will Long Island still be there in 25 years? Yep. Yep. Unquestionably. Good. Unquestionably. Good. Good. Uh, before we get going, we probably have to address the bloke up at Maroochee River Golf Club. Did you happen to hear about a bloke by the name of Kai McWhorters during the week? Not yeah. possible. 
Not possible to be a 30 handicap and shoot. What do you shoot? 77? 77 at Maroochy River. Um, just not possible. Not possible a, a legitimate 30 handicapper can break 80. Hey. It isn't possible. I, I um, was informed of this not long after it happened, Andy, and I and I had some grave sort of misgivings about it. I don't want to – he's obviously a good bloke, no problem oh, at yeah, all. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not, no. not denigrating him, but it's it's – you know, the, we, I was talking about this with my mates and we were saying, you know, we've we've each had 44 or 45 on that day out. We've heard of 48s, 49s. We know of 51s and 52s, but 61 is a whole new level. It's <laughs> it's something nice. that it means that he hasn't – he's been playing but hasn't been turning in cards. To ask for 30 handicap is a bit rich when he can shoot a 77. So the backstory is he hasn't played for – he hasn't put a card in for – he hasn't played comp golf for eight years and he used to play a bit – Hasn't played for eight years. Turned up in the comp, had 30 as a mark, and then shot 77. So he's obviously a pretty competent player, but um, <laughs> he just needs to get that mark down. You can't be having 61 every every second time you roll up. You'd be pretty unpopular around the clubhouse, I reckon, if you keep doing that. <laughs> so um, Peter O'Malley is going to join us in a moment. Uh, he can kick it off the um, recent chair of the PGA and a name well-known to everybody in Australia. But do we feel – do we get a general sense – that, you know, golf in Australia, the way tournaments are going to be scheduled, the way the game's going to be run, the way that administer, the, the, the thing's going to be administered across Australia state by state, we feel like we're slowly embracing this period of reformation. Do we feel like it'll gather a bit of momentum through this period or not? Uh, I hope it does, Andy, if you're asking me. it's it's we, We've been sitting here being... Um, no one's wanted COVID-19, don't get me wrong, but if this is going to provide the timing to have a crack at something here, then there is no better time than right now. And that's on a, on a massive scale. We can, we, and my, in, my pet here is the schedule, um, but, you know, mm. we can talk about joining forces, uh, the different bodies in golf, um, you know, doing what's right for professionals at club level, tour level, doing what's right for punters everywhere around Australia. This is our best chance right now. We haven't had this chance before. Okay, so I can see P.O. I, I don't know whether we can bring him into the conversation now. Hopefully we, we can. Justin Falconer is controlling um, this back at, uh, back at Central Command. He hasn't been launching any rockets this week, but this is equally as challenging uh, an operation, I think. I think we've got Peter O'Malley with us. Uh, Peter, can you hear us all? Yeah, yeah, I'm all good, thanks. Good on you, mate. Thanks for joining us on this kind of sort of rollicking old round table we're going to be um, putting together here on Inside the Ropes. We're, we're, the the base, the, the jump, jumping off point is assuming we're going to come out of this kind of lockdown phase and enter a world in which we, we all have golf in Australia looking the way we want it to look. If there's one or two things you would have um, as part of Australian golf going forward, Peter, what, what would they be? Well, I think we... we... We started on this sort of um, thing with this project line that we were trying to get going with um, the PGA and Golf Australia. Um, the initial thought was that we have one body running golf tournaments, professional golf, um, professional amateur, male, female, everyone. And we, we've got the right people in both organisations to do it. So if we can just get one um, uniform a lot of people doing every form of golf, you know, and then we it sort of helps out. Like the amateurs get a feel for what the 
what they need to be doing when they play in the pro ranks because they're, they're getting the same sort of guidance, same sort of rulings and everything all the way through. And you know, I think the uniformity is just getting one body to run everything. And um, I think amateur golf, women's golf, everything will, will benefit from this. And I think there's a, a good time now that we, and um, like Mark was saying, we haven't had the time to be able to do this, but with, with both organisations um, working from a lot from home and having a bit more time to put things in line here, this is a perfect opportunity to come out and and we we just work together and then we have one sort of uniform golf body in Australia running every form of golf. So, Pete, this is um, you could answer this question for probably four hours straight consecutively in one answer, I would imagine. But in a nutshell, what's been the stumbling block for that for our listeners? I, I think um, there's just been, a, uh, to be brutally honest, there's been a little bit of conflict between Golf Australia and, and the PGA, and I think we're sort of getting past that. I think things are, are working closer together, but the body, both bodies have got to want, to want this to happen, and I think, we're, I think we're going to get to that stage, and, and we have to get to that stage for this to happen. So. And I, you know, I think there's been a few stumbling blocks in personalities within organisations, but I think that's, I think we're getting over that. Can I ask all you guys a question about that? And I'm coming from the outside, and you blokes have all been on the inside. Maybe you go first, Blakey, if you've got something you want to add to what Hazy and and, and Peter have been saying. But we've seen in other sports, particularly a sport like the AFL, where a commission has been instituted. It's taken all the um, control away from the from um, you know, state bodies. And a commission was instituted about 40 years or 30 years ago and to, to various levels of success. When I hear you talk, Pete, and I hear Hazy talk, and you're, you still talk about the PGA and Golf Australia, these two separate entities that sit side by side at the top of the administrative tree in Australian golf, is it not possible just to have one body? Just one, one body? Just one just, one uh, overarching organisation that administers all elements of Australian golf underneath the one umbrella. Well, I think that's what we were trying to get to. I don't think we were, we we're never going to um, divide the two organisations because they're totally different. But we need a sort of a, a subcommittee as such or a golf part of that that just runs tournament golf. Um, you know, like the PGA is a separate entity and Golf Australia Sabrinese. They've both got um, different roles to provide for golf in Australia, but but there are ways that we can get everyone working closer together. Um, and, and the uniformity of this will, will just help everyone um, from the teaching pros to the the all club um, organisers organizers who are you know, just running amateur club comps. And then, but, and then you go to the elite level. It, it all just... It'll all just snowball if you just get the um, one sort of sort of subcommittee, or is if you like to call it that, um, just running tournament type of golf. Palmer, it's Blakey here. Um, it's just such a great idea. It's such a common sense idea. And I know that you were, you know, when you were the chairman of the PGA, you were very much in favour of it, weren't you? I was just wondering whether you're still involved in that whole process or whether anything's happening around it. Do you do you think it will happen? Eventually, well, I hope so. Like it, we haven't had a meeting about, we haven't had a project line meeting since I've been out of the chair. So, um, where where that's gone from, I, I, 
and obviously once you get out, you you, you don't you want to try and help out, but you you your time's done, so you have got to step step down. Um, but I think where there is time that we we still need to readdress this, and I and I it's, it's a perfect opportunity for us to get together and 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 um, yeah, if, if everyone in golf Australia and golf and the PGA just I think it's a good time for us to get back on the table and do this. Andy, I just I just don't think golf can afford to be as fragmented as, as it is right now. No, um, no. In this environment that we're in now, um, well, Blake, and Australia you... being so far away from the rest yeah. of the world, you know, we're a small country, small economy compared to, you know, the, the big tours are, you know, they're, they're blocking the sun, the European tour and the PGA tour. So, um, you know, we just need to be together. Well, there's economies here that need to be taken into account. We'll let you go in a moment, Pete, but, and it's a, it's a great point that you've raised. But, Blakey, you've seen, and so have you, Hazel, you've both covered you know, Australian rules footy. You, you've, you've covered the AFL. You understand what the commission looks like and how it functions. It, it's like the legislator, and then it hands the policy directions down to the various departments, whatever they may be. But they sit under the commission, which makes the policy decisions on the future of, of that game going forward. I can see this happening in golf. I mean, all the things that Pete is proposing, that they can sit under one overarching, you know, panel, if you like, that is made up of really good golf people who together steer the directions of the amateurs, the pros, the tournaments, the, the grassroots, the, the, all, every, aspect of, every aspect of golf can 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 be guided by um, by a commission type setup, and then you don't have these two entities anymore. You don't have Golf Australia doing its thing, and you don't have the PGA doing. It. It's one it's one family. It's, it's could you see well, that working in golf that model? Well, you know, it's not just AFL either. It's tennis and cricket. You know, that they're, they're not divided into oh, that's right. professional yeah. amateur, but you know, the big sports all get together, but. Pom would know this, that, um, you know, in recent years, we've had situations quite often where the PGA and Golf Australia are competing against each other for the ability to get players from overseas to play in their big events, you know, and players have been made to sign contracts where they'll play one but not the other. So it kind of goes against the, uh, you know, it goes against golf as such because the two organisations are competing. They're competing for sponsors as well. Mm. Um, you know, it just, it just doesn't make sense to me. It, came, it comes down to self-interest a little bit, and we've got to get past that. We've got to get past this, what everyone wants to do for them. We've got to look what we can do for the better of golf, and this is the type of thing we've got to do. We've got to be uniform in doing this, and, we just, and, and this is a perfect time to redress it and get back into it. We just have to do this to get back to – otherwise, you know, scheduling is another thing, but we, we need to work on, on this type of thing. Like over the years, we've gone through this calendar year or financial um, year type of um, – whether the tournaments are played and where the order of merit and things set up. Like we can readdress that all the time, but you know, we, we just have to be uniform you know, in, in everything we do here. So, And this is – like you said, this is a perfect time – um, getting through this COVID nineteen period, where where we can readdress this, you know, because we we've got no golf. Oh, well, we mm. start to play amateur golf again now, 
Um, you know, it's going to be a while before we play professional golf, so, but this is the perfect time to really address this and then um, make make it let's get uniform in the in the in in the future. Like I don't think um, we'll be able to get to the stage where we have one body, but like we can't have like a, a commission that oversees tournament golf. I think that's that's where we can get at. Isn't part of the problem when I was playing? There's always been a natural antipathy between the pros and the amateurs going back to when I was playing and Colin Phillips was running the AGU and Marty was the head of the players and they never really got on and it's never really gotten a whole lot better. And how many people who, I mean, how many people who are members at clubs really care about Golf Australia? They have no impact on their life. They have no interest in what Golf Australia does. They just play golf. And it's almost the same with the, how many of those players really care about the tour and how important is the tour to the overall health of golf? I guess they're two important questions, really. I mean, the tour is great. I love the tour. I love, I've always loved watching pro golf, but it seems to me that most people who play golf are not that interested in it. That, that they take out of golf what they want, which is their own game and their own experience and don't really have much relationship with either the PGA or Golf Australia. And, and so how you, um, how you redress that imbalance is important, I think. Yeah, I mean, one idea, one which we spoke about before we started was that the most important event in the country is the Australian Open, but it's been stuck in Sydney and it's been successful there for 15 years, but if you live in Perth, you haven't seen it for 45 years. So the one thing that Golf Australia really has to sell to golfers around the country is this Open that used to go around the country that doesn't anymore. I think it would be great if it went back to the, if we could somehow make it work on the old rotation where every six years, every major city saw the Open. And golf, you know, rather than having no connection with the biggest tournament in the country, every city in the country got a connection with the tournament every six years, five or six years. Yeah, a lot of that came down to um, state governments. Um, like, you know, realistically, if we didn't have funding from state governments, we wouldn't have any golf tournaments in Australia. So, so, and, and they, there, it comes back to this um, self-interest a little bit. They, they're looking at what they can do for, for their state. So, um, by by um, saying that the Australian Oval only played New South Wales, Golf Australia get a pretty good um, kickback from New South Wales government, or the and um, and the same thing yeah with, with a lot of the different tournaments so that the states have um, have these uniform sort of commitments to okay we'll only run this event and it has to be played here so we we in the future I think we. We've got to get past that. Um, we've got to re readdress how how we we approach these things. But with with um, funding from from state governments, you know, if we it's you pretty much relying on what they what they tell you to do because without them we don't play. So, mm-hmm. um, but this is a this is part of this thing where we you know maybe we can get them involved in this as um, what we can say possibly a commission or whatever it is on top. You know. Maybe we get Peter Blandy's that he run. He's, <laughs> my my niece works for him at Grace New South Wales. So there we go. I'm, I'm a, <laughs> well, given that we've got the Premier for Golf in Victoria, he would be one person who could sit the state premiers down and say, "How about we all get together and fund this open between us?" And it, when when it comes to your state, you pay for it, and it goes around the country. I mean, there's got to be a better way than having the Australian Open 
stuck in one city for 15 years because that, that, that's not an Australian Open anymore. Yeah. It's a glorified New South Wales Open, I think. Yeah. Clates, I think, uh, I think Golf yeah. Australia, they know that. Um, Stephen Pitt, the outgoing CEO, spoke about it at the Open last year where he said that down the track they'd probably like to have an anchor state, so maybe that's Melbourne or Sydney, and then rotate it around, so go Adelaide, Perth, maybe Tassie, um, Queensland, and then come back to the anchor. So a contract like that would – but it's, it's the right thing to do, isn't it, to rotate well, it well, I just absolutely the right thing, Andy. 1973 Brisbane, 1974 Perth, 1971 Hobart, and that was it. They haven't seen but, one since, really. But here's, but here's a way of circumventing all of this. If you have, if you have something like the – just let me call it the commission for the sake of it, right? If you have the commission and it is overseeing as part of its charter tournament golf – you could have the PGA Championship played in one state every summer and the Open played in a different state every summer. So on every calendar year, uh, every city, major city in Australia is getting two of the jewels of the Australian golfing crown played in that city. So we, we know in a 10-year period, if you rotate it around like that, uh, you're going to get a lot of major championship from an Australian major championship golf perspective. You're going to get a lot of golf over a 10-year period coming to your city. But that's got to be the decision that is um, is decided upon by a body, like Pom said on a couple of occasions, is completely devoid of self-interest. Yeah. Uh, and, and until that happens, I, I don't see how any of this is going to be um, – how any of this is going to be um, resolved. And the women's open too. There are the oh, three, main, yeah. the three main, the PGA, the men's and women's open, three events. I mean, they, if they went around the country – course. Yeah, Perfect. Got, yeah. Perfect. But you've got to set the state governments down and say, okay, what's the best plan for this and how do we make this work? And, yeah. Hey, Pete, we'll let you go. Thanks for bowling it up. It's um, it's a key issue, clearly. It's one of the major considerations of a show like the one that we're thinking about putting together today, mate. We really appreciate you putting your stake in the ground. Thanks for being part of it. No worries. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's something that's been um, yeah, on my mind since, since I've been involved and you know obviously um something that we we still have to address something i'd like to get back involved in so um yeah any, anytime i can help you guys out i'm happy to do that we'll vote one peter o'malley for the golf commission <laughs> we'll have we'll get you on this commission pete and you can be um, you can continue to make your um important contributions there okay thanks andy good on thanks. you mate thanks pete All right. Put, okay. peter o'malley joining us on the show so that's the sort of stuff we want to see. So, look, let's. Why don't we get to a break? We haven't even got to. Um, I know you've got more things you want to say, Clay. It's real ground level stuff. Hazy, I know you've been thinking about. And the amateurs have been mentioned a little bit there. I know that's a real hot topic for you, Blakey. You're going to just kind of really free range this and come up with something on the fly. So, hopefully, a seed's been planted. This is inside the ropes, the big kind of layover, lockdown sort of golf symposium. We're going to keep throwing a whole lot of stuff into the mix be joined by people who people who've got a really keen interest in Australian golf. More of that on the other side of this. Let's go back inside the ropes with Golf Australia. Welcome back to the show. Already a bit of food for thought there. Um, Martin Blake, Andy Marr, Michael Clayton and Mark Hazer. We're the body of this singer. We'll be joined by more on the way through. We've already had Peter O'Malley on the show. 
Hazy, I know you've been thinking about this a lot and, and you've, you've got something that you're pretty passionate about. So why don't we give you the floor? Yeah, I mean, it's partly amateur golf, as you said, Andy, but it's also um, uh, a bigger issue around the schedule. To me, um, the schedule is everything. Um, if we can coordinate what the schedule better looks like, we can, we can actually try and uh, sort of create a corner of the calendar where golf holds its own. Uh, I think that's really important. I know that hopefully one of our guests coming up in a few minutes, Nick Dasty, has come up with a great plan to try and get um, a new series of tournaments going. I think it's to be commended. We'll hear a lot more about it, the Players Series. Um, but for me, we need to factor in everything. We have been left with a model um, we've seen with Golf Australia and the States and the PGA that Pom's already talked about. We've been left with a model that's not where we would be if we started it now. So I think I think now's the best chance to get this sorted. And to me, the calendar of events uh, is critical, and it goes right from the the two Australian Opens right down to uh, you know state uh, elite amateur level golf. Um, I've I've got a few key thoughts. One is the Australian Open should be men and women together, just like the Vic Open. Um, I like the idea of rotation. If it's possible to find a 36-hole venue um, in different corners of Australia, I'm all for it. Um, but I do think the Australian Open and the Australian PGA Championship need to be back-to-back in order to create a reason for other tours to want to come down here and other players to want to come down here and be part of a bigger swing. Um, that same applies to the women. So that's hooking up the tournaments that are of significance to attract um, jointly sanctioned events. I'm moving that stuff entirely to late January and throughout February. And I'm, yep. took, I'm taking into consideration the New Zealand part of the tours as well. And for that matter, the New Zealand Women's Open, which is part of the ALPG, um, if it's up and about. Uh, I have got a whole – I've done a massively long calendar and basically everything, um, all the state opens – and a couple of other events that I've generated are all men and women together. They don't have to be on 36-hole courses. They can be smaller, but I've got a state of origin challenge. I've got the Australian Match Play Championship. I've got Super Sixes, the Vic Open, New Zealand Open, Australian Open, uh, and the Australian Interstate Series, that part after the Christmas break, all played with men and women together in some capacity. Um, That's all professional golf of magnitude, I suppose, uh, after Christmas. For me, that leaves up, that frees up December. I'm not going to try and make the case that amateur golf is going to hold sway in the mass media's mind. But I want to have the only thing we can't get a WGC, we can't get a major championship, be it men's or women's. We just can't do this stuff. What we can do, I reckon, is create the grand final of amateur golf in the world. And I would like to see a run up of events, including the New Zealand Amateur Championship, the Australian Master of the Amateurs, the Australian Amateur all heading towards a grand final of Australian golf. When we get the best golfers in the world used to coming down to Australia, uh, it takes up the late November, early December time slot when we, you know, we might be competing against spring carnival racing or we might be competing against uh, an early test series or something like that. But it's not really detracting from, uh, from it because amateur golf isn't big picture, but it would create something that, um, that can take good golf around the country again, which again, like, as Clayton said, I think is important, but also gives us a chance to be the central point of global golf. Um, the the only thing that tries to do this is the World Amateur Teams Championship. It does it on a Mickey Mouse level twice a year, once every two years. There's no reason there can't be a grand final of World Amateur Golf. I think it's a, I think it's something we could all look at and make happen pretty easily. And if we had 
again, a reason, three or four tournaments in a row to make the good players want to come to Australia, then that's the key. I, I might post some of this stuff out yeah. or write a, write a story about it. I've got a seriously long calendar that I've already drawn up. But I think they're the key things for me. I really like the Australian PGA's um, new wraparound season, going back to what it was when Clates was playing. Uh, I do think it's super important to take all the things around Australia as much as we can, um, take advantage of school holidays to get the junior things done. Um, but I, I am, as I've said before here, I'm a big proponent for different formats of golf. So, you know, as I said, a state of origin challenge, a match, Australian match play championship, super sixes. We've seen... Um, Blitz golf take take hold a couple of times here before COVID. Anything like this that we can share new tournaments around Australia with, I'm in. Either of you two got a thought on that before I ask a question to Hazy? I was just going to ask Hazy um, about the move to February. So the last few years, the Open and the PGA have been in December or late November. Why do you think that's better to go to, say, January, Feb? I think Australian golf needs points of difference, Blakey, and I think that the men's and women's together at the Vic Open has shown that that's, that can be our point of difference in global golf. So the key reason, one of the key reasons for that is to, for me to get the, the, we need, the women's cannot come to November because it's got a crowded calendar on the LPGA and we uh, have the Women's Australian Open and the Vic Open on the LPGA schedule. So it needs to stay out as the early events in the next season. I would like to see, um, you know, that that month become golf month, for want of a better phrase. So mm. we move the men's out to be with the women's. Um, I think we create runs on both calendars. Whenever there's a PGA championship, which is purely men, uh, then we then we hold a corresponding women's event. So the New South Wales Women's Open, for example, uh, but basically have women and men around Australia at different times um, through that period, and it's dictated by the Women's Australian Open timing on the LPGA Tour and the chance to really pinch a hold in February where there realistically isn't much going on before footy starts, all the different codes. It's a good time to, to play golf and the, the courses around the country are, are always in great nick at that time. Um, you know, I think we're probably, you know, Hazy, there's a good chance we're going to see something like this in in uh, 2021 because the Australian Open, as we know, is in doubt for this year, as I understand it. I don't think there's been an announcement. You might have some information about that, but there's a possibility that the Australian Open could be next February, is there not? Yeah, there absolutely is. Um, there's there's no way of knowing about sponsorship or course availability or crowd involvement or player availability, anything like that at the moment around um, the proposed dates, which were in November originally. So, um, the, the the later the calendar slot available to it this year, the better off and more likely we are to see it, I believe. So Simon Brookhouse might know a bit about that in a little while if we can get him to come on here. Um, but I think that's a, you know, we need, we, we are at the um, beck and call of the US PGA Tour too often. And we need to yeah, put, our, yeah, put, yeah. put our own stake yep. in the ground here and, and know that if you want to watch, you know, championship world-class golf, at professional level, that February's your month or late January, early February's your, your time on the calendar. Did you hear the podcast, um, the shotgun start, did with Ernie else, uh, not with Ernie, but about Ernie last week? I didn't realise that Ernie got a letter from Tim Fincham when he was one of the best players in the world, one of the best two players in the world, telling him, asking him, imploring him to blow off his international schedule 
where he used to play 17 times or 18 times in the United States and 13 times outside it to play more golf in America and give up on playing international golf. So to me, that was one, shocking. And two, it showed how much contempt the US tour has for professional golf around the world. So here was its greatest ambassador since Gary Player being told, come and play all your golf in America and forget about playing golf in Europe and Australia and Asia and Africa. It was a horrendous thing to ask the second best player in the world to do. And the one guy who was taking golf around the world. I mean, you can't believe how insular and selfish that letter was. And he just kind of, you know, paid no attention to it. But There's a whole lot of stuff we can spin off into all of that. I reckon um, Karen Lund, certainly one of those, the CEO of the ALPG, <laughs> We're just throwing a whole lot of stuff into the mix here, and Karen's been good enough to join us. Kaz, thanks for joining us. Welcome to Inside the Ropes. No worries, guys. How are you all going? We're going well. So so I'm sure you understand what the kind of blueprint of this thing is. We're, we're imagining that there's all these um, uh, committed people sitting around a big round table at the moment, and they're deciding what the best vision and the best um, lineup and the best future for Australian golf looks like as we come out of this kind of lockdown phase, and we're just we're just taking ideas from people who have been around the game and have got good ideas. And you're one of those. So if you could have one thing or or a couple of things that were an established and locked in part of Australian golf when we come back that maybe we don't have now, um, what would they be? Well, uh, I'd love to see um, Vic Open Styles event, Vic Open Style events in other states. I think obviously the Vic Open models work so well. It's so popular from the players' point of view, spectators, um, sponsors. So it'd be great to see some more of those events. But I guess when you're talking about schedules, um, again, it's uh, the, the million dollar question: How do you fit them all in? And I guess the challenge that we have with our events. Um, I guess we're a little bit different to the PGA. They could hold a standalone event any given week and fill a field, whereas we don't have the, the, the number of players. So we have to rely on the other tours. So our, our schedule is very much dictated by uh, the LPGA Tour, which obviously are, are sanctioning partners in the Vic Open and the Aussie Open, and um, uh, Golf New South Wales events um, with the Ladies European Tour. So our, our hands are a little bit tied. We have to fit in with the other tour schedules. But um, I think the, the PGA are going to the uh, wraparound uh, summer of golf is a fantastic initiative and I think a real positive one for the game. So let me ask you, Karen, and you, Clates, to answer this question. Maybe you go first, Karen. If if we decided to push on with that model, right, we found the venues and we had willingness, you know, to, to, to for all relevant parties to get it done in Australia, even if it didn't necessarily fit in with what the big tours are doing around the world, and as a result we won't get the influx of international players that we get in an event like the Vic Open and the Australian Women's Open, would there be enough interest amongst the golf fans of Australia if it was predominantly Australian players who were playing in those events? It's an interesting question. It's obviously a good question. And if you look where the Vic Open started um, as a, a men's and women's con- combined event, that's pretty much how it was back at Spring Valley and Woodlands in, I think it was 2012. Um, that's exactly what it was. It was it was Australian players. Um, we had a few foreign players. I think Joanna Clayton actually won the women's uh, event the first year. Um, but, I, but again, I mean, I think that, 
it's not just about the events. It's so much of what we can do around the events. And if you have men and women playing together, obviously there's so much, you know, uh, fans of men's golf become fans of women's golf and vice versa. And then when you get the kids involved, obviously boys become fans of girls' golf and vice versa. So it's not just the events per se. I think it's what you can do around the events to grow the game. And I think that's what um, obviously Golf Victoria and now Golf Australia do with the Vic Open. You see, you know, school visits with kids, there's clinics, there's other stuff going on. And, and that's what we need to do, I think. Um, whether or not they'd be as attractive, I don't know, but but certainly the Vic Open started off on a very small scale and was very successful and grew to the the, the you know massive event it is now. So I guess to answer your question, it was a success, otherwise it wouldn't have got to the point it is now. Clates, can you have you got have you got an answer? Have you got something you want to add to that? No, really. I think the lesson of the Vic Open is that it's not reliant on the quality of the field, rather that it's a great event. The people go to it because it's a really good event. They don't go to it because Roy McIlroy is playing. Mm. The reality is it's carried by the women. And the men's field, men were lazy gun, but, but the women's field was far better in terms of quality world-ranked players than the men's field was. But that, that open works because it's a great event. People get to walk on the fairways, they bring their dogs, and you get to watch two events at once. And people watch because it's an event, not because of who's playing. And they turn up and find, wow, there are really good players here. Karen, that's one, and it's a great idea. I think everybody around this table would love to see that happen. Is there something else to bowl up? I would love to see a, a men's and women's Australian Open play together like the Vic Open model. I think that would be the greatest showcase for our game, um, you know, on the world stage. And I think it really would be on the world stage as the Vic Open has become. Um, but, you know, I think that there's certainly a market and there will always be men's and women's only events. But as Clayton said, these these tournaments, and he put it beautifully, as he always does, um, they're events. It's not a golf tournament. It's an event. And the people come along. And and like I said, there's a village. And it's, it's the whole experience. It's a day out rather than coming to watch golf. And and I think that, you know, that that's part of why the events have been such a success. Karen, it's Blakey here. Um, we were talking – you didn't hear this, but we were talking to Peter O'Malley earlier, and he was talking about the need or his – feeling that golf should uh, be less fragmented. And, you know, the PGA, as is well known, was talking to Golf Australia a couple of years ago about a merger which never really came through. I know that the ALPG has done an arrangement with the PGA. Uh, so theoretically, the men's and the women's tours basically working pretty closely together. Do, do you sort of envisage down the track that golf would be a little more together that maybe maybe the ALPG and the PGA could be one body or something like that? Yeah, I mean, that may well be the case, you know, 20 years down the track. But at the moment, um, Gav and myself and the boards of both the PGA and the ALPG, like I said, we're working really close together um, in a number of areas. And I think that um, I think that it's going to be a mutually beneficial arrangements but for all of us. But um, I think the one thing that COVID has done is brought us all together and have a lot more regular conversations between all of the industry partners and bodies. Um, and I think that that's been the conversation, how we can all work uh, together for the for the betterment of our game. And, and ultimately, that's what we're all here for. That's our remit. You know, we're here to look after our game and, and ensure that it stays healthy here. So I think there's been a lot of really positive conversations. Um, and I think you'll find probably there'll be some changes in the future. Um, 
the PGA and ALPG will be remaining independent bodies. Um, you know, we'll have our own events, but we're working really closely together on a number of fronts. That's, like I said, it's only going to be helpful for, for both organisations. And, and like I said, I think there's going to be a lot more collaboration within the industry. Karen, thanks for being part of it. Uh, there's going to be a whole lot of ideas bowled up in this uh, hour, hour and a half, however long we're going to be sort of sitting here together doing this, and we really appreciate your contribution. Thanks for being part of it. Oh, no worries. You're welcome. Thanks, guys. Good on Thanks, you. Thanks, guys. Karen Lund, CEO of the ALPGA, joining us. Hey, Clates, these ideas that, that Lunny's mentioning and that Hazy's mentioning, you know, the, the Vic Open model all over Australia, have we got enough venues that, that has every city got a venue that straight off the top of your head could replicate what, what happens down at Barwon Heads? Well, Adelaide does at the Grange, uh, but it depends on the size of the field you want. I think you can run legitimate. I don't think you can have depends, – it depends which tours are involved, but you couldn't have an Australian event with 75 men and 75 women because the bottom – 30 women don't cut it. They're not good enough. So do you have a field of 150, 100 men, 50 women on an 18-hole course? I mean, you can play it at Royal Queensland, Lake Carnot, Royal Adelaide, wherever you want, the Lakes, Royal Sydney. So I think going with an equal-size full field doesn't really work because you've got to go to two courses. Yeah. And, I th and I think these events work better. At Vic Open shows they work better at one venue with one clubhouse and one central point. So, you know, the question is, can you play a Queensland Open at Royal Queensland with 100 men and 50 women? Unless you get the, you know, the European tour involved, then 75 and 75 is fair enough. We just don't have, enough, you know, that many quality women players that justify an equal field at this point. Bob, well, yeah, who knows? There's a, there's a, you're going, you're going. I, I think to Clayton's point, Hey, uh, as we're going to be joined by Nick Dasty here from the PGA in a second, Andy, but um, there's, he'll talk to us about a series, or, you know, just the, the, the bare bones of the series that he's got planned, um, whereby we do have equal number of men and women. And it is because, as Clay's alluded right at the end there, that we have so much foreign membership of the ALPG at the moment because um, the women do have a hard time um, building a tour around the world where they can play constantly. So there is the chance that there'll be a lot more European women, uh, ALPG-affiliated European women in our neck of the woods if this comes to fruition. Well, a few of us have heard a little bit here and there about this player series, and you've mentioned, you've mentioned Nick Dasty a couple of times. Hazy is the PGA Tournament Director, and hopefully by the end of our chat with you, Nick, you're going to plant the seed for something that's, I think, going to be really exciting in the minds of a lot of Australian golf fans. Great to have you here on Inside the Ropes, mate. Thanks for your time. As we're... No worries, Andy. Thanks for having me. Tell us about this. This I don't know whether you've settled on the name, the Player Series. I hope you have. It's a great name. But tell us, tell us about the concept. Yeah, we we certainly have uh, settled on that as the name of uh, of this series. So I mean, the concept in you know I guess a, a overall sense is for male and female professional golfers um, to be competing against each other. Uh, on the one golf course, playing together for the one uh, for the one prize pool and and for the one title, um, we will also have elite amateurs uh, as we do with all our our tournaments, uh, joining the professionals in those events. Um, so, yeah, that's I mean the overall scope of of what the series is all about. It's all about 
a development tour really about providing development opportunities for our young professionals um, to be able to take the next step and, and play more competitive golf here in Australia. I love it. I don't know about you two, you other blokes, but by all means bowl up and, and talk to Nick, ask Nick anything you like. But I think that every now and again you hear an idea, and that is a very basic outline of your idea, Nick. But every now and, he, every now and again you hear a thought and an idea and you go, oh, I want to, we have to see that happen. I don't know. It needs to be seen by as many people as possible. It needs to get as much publicity as it can possibly get beyond just the golf um, world here in Australia. But that just sounds like uh, an event for the time. There is a real, in terms of the kind of broader zeitgeist out there, this just feels like it's waiting to happen. I think it's a great idea. Before Nick answers that, um, Mario, I just want to, I think, Nick, your plan, correct me if I'm wrong, was to add these tournaments rather than take over existing tournaments. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's all about creating more opportunities. Um, we're not about converting events that, that we already have into this format. It's all about creating more opportunities um, for those young professionals. And, and look, when I say young professionals, there'll be some of our older professionals are also playing because they're, they're going to be key. I mean, the key to this is um, developing our, our players and, and certainly having someone like a... Um, you know, a, a Jeff Ogilvy as an example, who's who's spending more time home here in Australia and, and has scaled back his his US tour commitments. Um, having him play in some of these player series of events alongside our young 19, 20, 21 year old up and comers is is going to be key to the success of this. So, Nick, can I ask you in your role away from the players uh, series, you a challenge, you charged rather with. Um, presenting a schedule that's uh, very problematic to build, I would imagine, from your perspective, for so many reasons. State government, sponsorship, course availability, player availability, there's a million different aspects to it. Would you like to see them all bundled into one big run or is it best to be sporadic? And I ask you specifically around the, I guess, distinct, as Blakey pointed out before, the distinct chance this year that the PGA Championship and Australian Open are going to be um, you know, a month or so even further apart. Uh, yeah, look, there is a million things that go into scheduling. There's no doubt about it. Um, you could have a uh, whiteboard in front of you and go write down all the tournaments and say, gee, that looks fantastic. It would be great to play them in, in that uh, in that row. But, I mean, you touched on a couple of them. Um, yeah, we've got many things to think about, which is how it works for our tour, how it works for the fans, how it works for the event promoters, you mentioned government. If government are uh, one of the heavy backers of a certain event, uh, and if we use the Vic Open as an example, um, it doesn't make sense to have that the same week that the Australian Open tennis is on or the, the F1 Grand Prix. So so depending on where the money's coming from for an event um, can really dictate where it's held as well. Um, what other major sporting events are, are going on? Um, the Vic Open, as another example, has four tours involved. So how do we... How do we find a week that works for not only the PGA Tour of Australasia, the European Tour, the LPGA and the ALPG, um, who all have their own uh, problems when setting their schedule? So it, it does become very problematic uh, in, in making that happen. So, Nick, is it would it be a fair comment as an Australian golf fan as, as myself and the others here on this call that we actually stick a flag in the ground here and say this is our time 
rather than getting pushed around year by year by all the different tours that come and visit? Yeah, I don't think it's a matter of getting pushed around, Hazy, but, um, you know, if we're going to work with other tours and we're going to have co-sanctioning, which co-sanctioning um, has helped get many of our players onto overseas tours across the years. So it's an important pathway for not only the um, PGA Tour of Australasia, but also the ALPG now through events like the Vic Open and, and the Australian Women's Open. So um, I don't think it's a matter of getting pushed around, but it's about finding some common ground and, and a date that works for all. Um, at the end of the day, uh, the PGA Tour of America, the, um, the LPGA Tour and the European Tour are, are huge tours that play all around the world. Um, and, you know, we, we have to, to a certain degree, be able to fit in with their schedule too if we're going to be a part of that tour or, or those various tours. Nick, Hazy asked you a question before about um, you, the creation of kind of new events, you know, rather than sort of taking over pre-existing events. One of the things that I reckon has been a really sad um, observation in my time on the planet and as an Australian golf fan is just watching the deterioration in public interest um, of the state opens. You know, when I was growing up, the state opens were a really big deal. Half of them, Clates was playing in, and we watched them on TV. Now, I understand it's a, a different world we live in nowadays. But would you, could the player series, could there be three prizes up for grabs? Could there be the prize that you're talking about, the men playing against the women? But is there a possibility that they could also be incorporating the state opens? And there's a prize for the man and there is a prize, you've got the state open champions awarded as well. If, if it's too crowded and there's too many events, but we want to breathe some life into our state opens, is that a possibility that could be considered? Um, I guess the challenge you've got is, is player numbers as well and, and being able to tick all the boxes. You know, the, the state opens <coughs> are, are vitally important for the elite amateur player pathway as well. And, you know, a number of our state opens and the Vic Open's gone a, a different model in, in recent years. But if we looked at the Queensland Open and the WA Open as such, they, they have a large component of amateur golfers playing in the field. Now, if we're going to a TPS, the Players Series model with, with male and female, straight away we've, you know, if we're going to have a field of 144, we've only got room for sort of seven, 65 or so male professionals and the same from a female professionals. So how do we then fit in 25, 30 amateurs that uh, traditionally will play in those state opens as well without going to a two-course model? And as soon as we go to a two-course model, it clearly brings in other factors of um, venue availability, yep. Yep. cost cost to put the event on and, and everything like that. So I think uh, the, the state opens um, can coexist with the player series. They don't necessarily need to take on that model and, and still serve... Um, what has been a really important purpose over many years uh, in Australian golf. Um, and, and I can see each of those Opens still being on our schedules for a long time to come yet. Have you- hey, Nick, uh, apologies for the loaded question. Not really, but a, little, <laughs> a slight apology. Um, how, would a, how would a body that ran all tournament golf, both amateur and professional, Australian Open, Australian PGA, all the big events, every event, how would a, a body just one body, how would that go in Australia? The reason I'm asking is because Peter O'Malley was on earlier and he was suggesting that. Well, I think, I mean, in in some respects we have that. That's what the PGA Tour of Australasia does when it comes to 
all events fall under our umbrella and, and are part of our tour and, and sanctioned by the PGA Tour of Australasia. Um, but we're always going to have various different tournament promoters and, and various bodies involved in, in running our events. Um, you know, to even if we look at uh, the other tours around the world, they have different promoters and, and different bodies involved in all of their events. They just fall under the umbrella of the PGA Tour of America or the European Tour. Nick, that's, that's right, because the Masters is obviously, you know, <coughs> owned by Augusta and, and that kind of thing. But I'm just, you know, um, it doesn't mean that we have to go down that path, though, necessarily, even though we have already. But, you know, I'm just wondering whether we need to have the game come together a bit. And what I'm talking about is that Golf Australia, as the owner of, say, the Vic Open and the Australian Open and the Women's Australian Open, we, we, you know, would hand that over to the, this body to run on their behalf. Yeah, uh, look, in an absolute ideal world, could it uh, could it work and, and would it work potentially? Um, then, you know, I guess it's dependent on who the promoter is of the event and who's underwriting the event too. If it's, if it's the one body underwriting every single event in Australia, um, that's a lot to underwrite. Um, at the moment, we have various different promoters. Um, you know, the, the Australian PGA um, is underwritten by the PGA of Australia. Um, the Australian Open, as you mentioned, is is underwritten by by Golf Australia. Uh, the State Open's the same. So, so we have various different parties involved. Um, but like I said, I think when we look at the PGA Tour of Australasia, is the governing body of the the professional tour in Australia. There is no reason why we, as the PGA Tour of Australasia, can't work in well with each of those bodies. And and I believe that we do at this point in time. Nick, when when might we see a play series event? Are we are we getting close to to this? You know, sort of feet on on ground. Yeah, yeah, yeah abs- absolutely. Um, look, we we were getting very close to being in a position to um, look at announcing a couple of events prior to this whole uh, COVID um, episode, and uh, we certainly were were looking to do that around sort of April May, looking at the full launch. Um, Things have been put on hold a little bit due to the obvious situation we're in, um, but we certainly still have confidence that sort of come October, uh, November, we'll be able to make some announcements and, and look to have some events in hopefully the early part of 2021. Well, good luck. I'd love to see it, mate. Thanks. Yeah, go, Hazy. Yep. Well, I've got one last question around that because you know, Nick gave us a bit of a you know insight into this last week. Um, Nick, could it possibly be that we have a sort of a grand final of the player series that maybe turns into a players championship or perhaps a revival of the masters or would it be a a separate tournament altogether but you know something that looks like a grand final yeah the the players series um look if if we were to fast forward five years down the track and in a in a perfect scenario we'd have sort of eight to ten player series events um down the track the player series itself would look to then have a series of final um so an event worth a bit more money, a bit more prestige for those that have performed well in the player series of events. Um, I guess, Hazy, what you're talking about there, more of a tour championship for our overall tour. We would love to down the track and, and you know, going to the wraparound season now and, and our summer of golf and, and finishing in sort of February, March, we would love to get to a position where we could have a season-ending event for our PGA Tour of Australasia. 
So the player series would be would be separate, and once we get a, a number of events up on the player series, we would look to have a final for the player series. But getting back to what we had many years ago for the PGA Tour of Australasia and having a, a season-ending event um, uh, would be would be fantastic in the future and, and something that we certainly want to do. Nick, good luck. It's a great idea. Hopefully it comes off. Thanks for telling us about it. No worries. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me on. Nick Dasty, the PGA Tournament <laughs> Director. Um, go on. What do you reckon, boys? Thoughts on thoughts on that? We'll get a breakout line in a moment, but before we do, Clates and Blakey, your thoughts on that? My question would be, if you're playing for one prize fund, say you're playing a course like Yarra Yarra, Spring Valley or Long Island, but there's 6,100 6, or 200 metres long for the men. So how do you set that up so the women can shoot equal scores without playing that golf course ridiculously short and every hole becomes a driving a chip for them? Yeah, I think that they, um, you know, they put a lot of thought into that in that tournament that was held along these lines in Jordan. Yeah, uh, they did. Megan McLaren worked pretty well. Yeah, and and from listening to Nick and Kim Felton the other day and Karen Lyon explain this to me and others, um, it was very much that um, a lot of research has already gone into it. The numbers you'd need to make. So I don't know, Clay's depending on the to- on the course, of course, but you might need to make specific tees. Because um, you can't have, um, if I'm being very, you know, old-fashioned here, you can't have a blue or a black tee and a red tee spot only because the the, the female professionals will gobble up the red tees. Um, can they play off the blue tees? Can they play off the black tees? I don't know. But to get to shoot the same score, logic would tell you that you're going to have to be somewhere advanced from the from the championship markers. Yeah, the problem is, that, I mean, Sue O can play. Long Island off the back tees. And the course plays perfectly. It plays pretty much as it used to play for us, as far as the ball goes now. But to put her against Jeff Ogilvy, she's got to play, or Lucas Michelle or Blake Collier, or she's got to play a way forward. But as far forward as she has to go, the course becomes a joke for her as well. It's a problem, Clates, at the Vic Open, isn't it? Yeah. Well, no, it's not a problem at the Vic Open. Because they have a separate prize fund. And now, whilst the women were getting head up about, oh, we look bad because our scores aren't as good, no one cares about the scores. Well, uh, if, I think know, they it, thought it, it's not a good look. That's all. Uh, but, but they were the only ones that thought that. No one else thought that. No, no, one, no, one, you know, no, no one thought that So Young Yu put on a bad show last year because she was eight just behind the men. And of course, no one expects Raylene Ball to run the same time as Usain Bolt. This, you know, it's, no one expects Ash Barty to beat Novak Djokovic. So why would we expect them to shoot the same scores? But if you chuck them in, in, into one tournament, all playing for the same money, then you've got, I think you've got to completely distort the dimensions of the, of the women's course to equal the scores up. And, and, and once you've gone that far, the whole point of them is actually getting them to play better golf. The course becomes so short and so easy that what's the point to it? Why wouldn't you just split the purses and have them play like the Vic Open does, which I think does it really well. But that's part of the that's part of the attraction of this TPS. If you if for, that, that's part of the attraction is that that for six, eight, ten tournaments a year, they are playing against one another, albeit on a you know a course that takes that into course set up that takes that into consideration. But mm. 
I, I love that. I mean, I, I love the Vic Open as a as a as a tournament and a concept, but this is completely different. And uh, I don't know, I don't know whether people are going to get bruised egos. I don't know whether courses are going to be able to deal with it. But I would love to see this happen. I mean, yeah, I, I just don't know how you set the golf course up yeah. so that you make it a fair fight. But because you can do that, but the women's course becomes so short that it's condescending in length to someone like Suo. To ask her to play a 5,700-metre course is just a joke for her. So what, are the, what, 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 uh, what distance courses are they playing routinely in, say, the States? Well, I think they're too short, but they play 6,500 or 600 yards. But that's it's way too short for – when there are, there, are, you know, there are four or five women on the LPGA Tour who average longer than Greg Norman used to. They're averaging 280 yards off the tee. Greg averaged 276 or 278. So I mean I don't I would want to see with my own eyes that Sungong Park out driving Greg Norman circa 1985, but you know that the that, that that's the problem is that the women of the ball a long way now. But but you know, I played with Lucas Michelle at Metro the other day. Every par four in the front numbers are driving a pitching wedge. Yeah, I think I don't know. You know, it's just really tricky to try and set it up so it's the same. I mean, you can run a 100-metre race and give, give look, I don't know the world 100-metre cha- women's champion is now, but, you know, if you put Flojo or Raylene Boyle or Renata Steck or whoever it was from my era, what are you going to start them? Yeah, I reckon I've got Flojo. I reckon I've got Flojo covered these days. I reckon. Yeah. But, you know, how do you make, <laughs> how do you make that work? To even yeah, it's, it's a good call. It's a really good call. Hey, what, 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 what sort of... What sort of distance differential are we talking about? We're really only talking about the drive, right? We're only, we're only talking about off the tee, and we're only yeah, talking so, about par. So we're only talking about par fours and fives. That's all we're talking about, right? Well, par threes. I mean, Sue, the, the second of Metro, Sue and I hit. We're at the same clubs. It's a five iron shot for us. It's an eight iron shot for Lucas. So, but if you move it up to where it's an eight iron for Sue, it's that's you know, it's just. I mean, it kind of works, but, but the next hole, the third hole, we played the other night. Lucas drove it 40 yards off the green. So, yeah. you know, we can't, we can't distort courses based on the distortion of the, uh, you know, the technology around the courses at those clates, can we? Well, yeah, but Lucas is the type of guy that's going to be playing, and Sue's the type of girl that's going to be playing. So, do you have to move the women's tee up so she can drive it 30 yards off the green as well? Uh... In which case, you're sticking it on the on the women's tee, which is like, I mean, they're grandmother's tees for her, literally grandmother's tees. Well, you pre- I mean, I think you've got to play it and see how it plays out. I just think it's really tricky to try and equate the scores. Yeah, but I think you're right. I think it's you're right. one you're, event. Yeah, you raise a really good point, but it's, don't you reckon, aren't you, are you interested in the concept? Yeah, absolutely, but I think you've got to make sure that you don't make the women's course so short that, in trying to get them to be better players, which is what you're trying to do ultimately, is to create a, a, a tournament environment where our players are able to go to the LPGA Tour, the European Tour, and the, and the PGA Tour and compete. But, but you're not going to achieve that if, you know, if you're sticking Steph Bunky out there, who's a tremendous amateur player, on a 5,400-metre golf course so she can equal Lucas Michelle. A bloke's going to get stroppy with this. Like, well, we'll if, if we play five of these things and the first four of the first five are won by women, 
Are the male players going to start to get shirty with all of this? They're going to even well, they're going to, well, well, of course, because they're going to say, "Well, the women's course is a joke." Well, no, once that happens, once that happens, the concept's cooked. No, no well, yeah, which is why you either. Well, I think you do it because they did it in Jordan and it worked pretty well. I think Matt McLaren led after three days, so, so they figured it out. But you've got to have it so that it's actually getting the. Giving the women somewhere that's competitive, but it's also improving their golf. Yeah, and yeah, play, sure, sure. And playing a course that's just set up so the scores are going to equal out isn't improving their golf because every hole is going to be a drive and a chip. That's a fair. I, I take all your points, Clades, yeah, but I so do I. think that most of the the second tier championship courses, for want of a better phrase, are now too short for men anyhow. So well, of course they are. Absolutely. I mean, Spring Valley and Yarra and Yarra. I mean, well, Metro is one of the longest courses in the country, and I watched. You know, Lucas, I mean, we weren't off the back tee on the first hole, which they only used for the Masters, but third hole, he hit it 35 yards off the green. The tees were 15 yards up, and it was a little, I mean, it was a little downwind, but, you know, I mean, all the courses are too short. Yeah, these are the bigger problems. I, I think it's worthwhile. Yeah, you know, that's not our Yeah, that's right. And I, I think it's, you know, it's a very valid point, but I think it's worthwhile having a crack at, and if it gets tournaments up and about, I mean, we've all watched the Australian men's tour deteriorate from 22, 26 tournaments down to the, um, you know, the pittance that it has now. We need to build that back up. Mm. Um, you know, without without that, we don't have um, the chance to get anyone out on tour because we just won't have the numbers playing. I'm not sure you just can't have separate events. Just have just do what the Vic Open do. Have, yep. have separate prize funds in the same event. I just think that's a better way to do it. Uh all food for thought. We better get a break out of the way. Uh, inside the ropes, the blueprint going forward, the big think tank edition. Uh, another couple of ideas to bowl up with a couple of other special guests after this. Let's go back inside the ropes with Golf Australia. Welcome back to Inside the Ropes, this kind of roundtable, kind of rambling think tank that we're bowling up ideas left, right and centre. I'm loving it, by the way. I reckon there's some really good sort of conversations to be had um, in and uh, off some of the stuff that we've been talking about. And maybe some of the issues that we're talking about are kind of revealing themselves to still perhaps be um, at large during the course of the conversations, but others can work all of that out for themselves. Hey, Blakey, uh, we're yet to hear from you. Simon Brookhouse is about to join us. What have you got for us? We've solved, every, solved everything, haven't we, Andy? We've got the Rotational Australian Open, one body for uh, running golf tournaments. Uh, we go to February and have a, you know, a, a month of golf down under. It's all, all fixed, isn't it? Uh, obviously, easier said than done. The one thing that I wanted to throw in, and it's not, not brain surgery or anything like that, but what the, the big miss with Australian golf, and I'm talking specifically about the Australian Open for men over the last few years has been the fact that it's not part of any other tour other than the Australasian tour. Um, it's got to find a place, a co-sanctioning with another tour, which the obvious one is Europe, um, which is what the PGA has done, and the Vic Open is now part of Europe as well. So I think that's, uh, you know, I don't know what Hazy thinks or Clates, but to me, you know, it, it doesn't guarantee you a great field because we saw at the Vic Open uh, last year, you know, the first year of European co-sanctioning, the field wasn't all that great. It's not like uh, Rory McIlroy just drops everything and comes down and plays, but because it's a long way away, but... 
Uh, I just think the Australian Open, as as a standalone event, it's really just hung out to dry, and they need to, you know, something needs to be done about that urgently. That's what I wanted to throw out there. Well, good thoughts, Clates or Hazy, before we get to Simon Brookhouse, who might have a view on all of that for us. Well, I, I, that's part of the reasoning I said we need to have the PGA yeah. and the Australian Open hand in hand with each other on the calendar, wherever they are, because without that happening, we won't have justification to have the quality players come down from whether it's Europe, Asia, the US, wherever it is. And Hazy, Hazy um, just for the listeners' benefit, my, my understanding is that Golf Australia tried to push this out there you know, maybe in the last two years. They did talk to Europe, but they weren't able to agree. Is it right that they weren't able to agree on a, on a date? They were, they were being offered dates that weren't suitable or they were going to be a secondary event, like a second European event on the same weekend, that kind of thing? There's no better time right now, uh, Andy, than to introduce our next guest because he'll be a far better place to answer that question than me. He's the general manager of golf operations. I can never keep up with his title. I've said that to him in the past. It's ever-evolving and far too long. But uh, this is right in his wheelhouse. His name's Simon Brookhouse, well-known to everybody here at Inside the Ropes, and he's been good enough to join us. Hello, Simon. I'm, how are you, Andy? Good to see everybody. Good to see you, Hazy, Clates, Mr. Blake. Hello, mate. Right, so you've heard the preamble. It was almost like it was a deliberate setup to um, put you out on the ten metre springboard and let you let you fly. Um, what can you What can you add to the to the uh, conversation that Hazy and Blakey have just been having? I think that the most important thing is that is as Blakey just articulated. It's the challenge with scheduling. Um, you know, there's opportunities for us, no doubt, with the men's open to, to have a co-sanctioning partner and whether that be a decision that it's Europe or not um, is not the hard part. The hard part is fitting in with the schedule. And as you see this year, that the the announcement around the PGA Championships to be 3 to 6 of December is in direct clash with the Nedbank Rolex Series event in South Africa. So um, what value is that then? Um, to them in terms of the, their actual venue, when uh, sorry, their event, when their best players, no doubt, will play in the Rolex Series event. So that, that's always impactful when you're making these decisions. But the one thing I think that's important to us is what is our role in golf as an organisation? It's to provide the best opportunity for our own. Uh, and when we look at the Vic Opens co-sanctioning um, with Europe in the last two years, fortunately last year we had a great winner in Minwoo Lee who now gets the opportunity to have a full um, card for two years in Europe. And the benefit for that is immeasurable for someone like him. Um, and that's, I think, as, as much what we've got to look at when making these decisions is, 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 is as to who you co-sanction with um, and where it'll take our players. Um, ultimately, from a Golf Australia perspective, we invest in our young players and uh, our rookie scholarships and various other things. And to give them that opportunity to springboard and springboard their careers, I think there's value in that. So, Simon, I get that, and it's very altruistic, and I agree, and that would probably be true from the ALPG, PGA, and GA's perspective. Yeah. But these tournaments live and die by how many people are interested in them, so that, because that ultimately comes back to sponsorship, and that, you know, if we hold them, you know, separate or off tours and there's no one coming or, you know, in an obscure place um, with no funding, then the interest from the public diminishes and the tournament ultimately will do the same. That's an issue too. Mm. Oh, look, there's no doubt. And look, I, I agree with your comments. You, having a standalone event uh, is, is really challenging. I mean, we saw that with, with the Vic Open being the only European tour event for one week last year. To, the challenge to get people, players to come to Australia is immense. 
Um, I think the, the great opportunity we've got now, let's talk the situation we're in now with COVID. Um, I think as a country and as a golfing uh, fraternity, we've got a great opportunity to promote Australia as one of the safest places on earth to play sport, let alone golf. Um, so does this give us a great opportunity moving into 2021 to, to relaunch our events uh, on, a world, on a world scale in terms of let's get the best down here to play because they need playing opportunities. And I don't think there's any doubt at the moment that you look at the LPGA schedule, the PGA schedule, the European Tour schedules, that there are going to be all of them looking for desirable venues to play. Uh, it's, it's questionable whether athletes are going to travel at the moment. And I think that's a really difficult situation for us to actually have an understanding of what's going to happen around them. But if we can at least say to anybody who wants to come to Australia, well, look at the great work we've done around COVID. Our borders are now open. Um, we want you to come here and play. It's a safe haven. We've always looked after the golfers when they've come here, um, particularly on the female side with the long longevity of the Women's Australian Open at the LPGA. Um, the question then becomes is, well, what's going to happen in Asia, which was the epicentre of, of coronavirus? Um, as you all know, there, there's a number of high-profile tournaments through Asia, whether it be LPGA, PGA, European Tour. So uh, is there that opportunity now to, to, to uh, sorry, are they going to go ahead? One. Um, therefore, is there more opportunity for players to come here and play in our events because they need playing opportunities? And I think that's something we need to, to try and get our head around as we start to come out of this situation. Do we keep paying players to come down here? It's a good question, Andy. I mean, it's, it's, it's been a model that some will argue hasn't worked. Um, I'd, I'd, I'd love to say hand on heart that we don't have to do that. Um, the reality of it is, is, is there's one medium that, that precludes us from just making that statement, and they're the player managers. Um, if, if, if we could have the support of the players for a place to go, I think it's a really, really good opportunity to, to test the waters on that. Um, we don't pay the females. Uh, and we get some of the best in the world to come here. Uh, we do, and, and there's, there, there's precedent throughout the golfing world that the male players do get paid to play. I'm not suggesting that they're not worth their value at all. Um, most of them who come here have provided a lot of value, but is this the time to say, well, we need golfing opportunities, we need our own to support us in our country, can, can you help us? Clay. Can you, let's put these back on the map. In the in the in the twenty years that we've been doing this, or even longer, however however long you, but in, say say in the in the last generation and a half of paying big name players to come down here, is Australian golf better or worse for having had you know Rory and Spieth and all of them? You know, yeah, we all know who they are. The ones that we've been paying a lot of money to come down here, and the Australians, which is another topic for another day, probably. But is Australian golf better off because we've been doing that? Yeah, it's, we're all better off we're seeing Tiger Woods play at Royal Melbourne. That was one of the great... I was sat by the 16th green, the last match in the singles, and there was a little kid there. I said, I always remember you saw Tiger Woods play golf. You know, you won't see him play again probably, and you know, it's something that should be a memory for a lifetime for him. So, of course, it's better off. We're better off having seeing Spieth at his best and Adam play some, that, that great open with Rory. So I think you're right. And golf was better off for Nicholas and Player and Palmer and Thompson and Greg and all of that stuff, but my objection is the amount they get paid. I assume you listened to Rory on McKellar the other day where he kind of suggested he was half interested in playing the Australian Open for nothing because it was at Kingston Heath. 
which goes to my old point at the whole start of this was rather than having it in Sydney at the Australian or the Lakes or Royal Sydney, which is not going to be a great attraction for Rory, playing at Royal Melbourne or Kingston East or moving it around the country to the best courses in each state, then it goes back to being a great event again. So, you know, but, but certainly Kingston Heath was, a, and, and I think Victoria in 2022 would both be great attractions for guys like Rory who don't need the money. In reality, the managers are much more interested in it than they are. And, and that's not talking about Rory specifically. Uh, the golf courses here are great attractions. Do you get that sense, Simon, that in the consciousness of, you know, players that you're discussing, you know, the prospect of getting down here, that the lure of playing on these courses, particularly post, you know, President's Cup when Royal Melbourne was as big a story as anything, you know, um, is, that, is, that in, is that front and centre? Yeah, I think it is, Andy. I think one of the great things, uh, look, there's there's golfers who travel to play great golf courses and let's be honest, there's some who are, are just happy to, to stay home. Um, but some some of them, like a Rory, have come out uh, quite openly and said that Kingston Heath is a lure for him, and I'm sure he's not the only player thinking that. Um, but he's his own man, and 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 he makes those decisions. And I, I suppose going back to my earlier point, I'm not denigrating the role of a player manager in any way, because they've got a role to do to maximise the income of their player. The reality of it is, is, is has it gone too far, as Clayton said, and and what is the the market value of a of an appearance fee? Because mm. um, it's really hard to quantify in terms of return. But if we go back to Tiger at Kingston Heath um, for that Masters, you know the, the Victorian government will tell you that the the return on their investment was enormous. Um, so so there's that there's that as well. Um, the reality of it is, is a lot of the money that comes to fund our golf tournaments, if not 80% of it, comes from governments. So we've got to also be conscious of the fact that coming out of a situation like this, is is that government funding still going to be there moving forward? Is there going to be a tightening of the, the fiscal policies of governments around sporting events? Uh, I, I can't give you the answer to that now. I do know that we're fortunate we've got contracts in place with South Australian governments and Victoria excuse me, and Victorian governments and, and New South Wales governments at the moment. But we really need to be conscious of that there might not be as much money there moving forward. Simon, um, earlier on, um, Peter O'Malley was a lead-off hitter and he's uh, he suggested strongly about, you know, unifying the different bodies around Australia in terms of tournament golf. Yeah. Can I put something to you without trying to get myself the sack from Golf Australia that we need to do that on more levels than just tournament golf as well for the very reasons that you were just articulating there. There's only so much available in the pie and we don't want to divide it five or six different ways. Sure. Look, I think um, some of the work we've been doing, and let's let's talk PGA and, um, and ALPG at the moment have got a, a collaboration, a spirit of collaboration together and we've worked closely in recent times with the PGA to enter a memorandum of understanding around collaborating in certain areas of the business. And, and I think that's the way to go. We're all aware of the Australian Golf Centre, which uh, the building permits got issued last week and we'll start the, the construction of the, the National Golf Centre. Um, so so that, that in itself brings those two major bodies together under one roof. And if that's not a, a catalyst for doing more things together, um, look, I'll be honest, I'm not sure what is. 
So, um, but your, your question around um, can we collaborate on more than just tournaments? Absolutely, because you look at the departments that assist tournaments. Um, it's our marketing communications teams, our digital strategies, even our development people are involved with our tournaments, running clinics and those sort of things. So ultimately as a game, if, if, we, if, we, if we use the, the tournaments as the advertisement for golf and the showcase of our great players, we should all be in that together. So we're looking at, you know, can I give you a specific example of the problems that, you know, we confront? The PGA is bound by their, you know, very being that they they promote pro shops and the sale of products within those pro shops on course. Golf mm-hmm. Australia is bound by, you know, years and years of loyalty from Drum and Golf and the partnership that's been created there. But yet the Drum and Golf and the on-course pro shops don't necessarily go hand in hand, obviously. Um, th- these are sort of things that need to be overcome if the bodies are to come together? Absolutely. Um, the commercial strategies of the organisation is really important because they, they at times are conflicting, but the contracts don't last forever. Um, and I, I would say that one of the biggest, and people have heard me say this before, is that one of the biggest drawbacks of our industry is we tend to say no before yes. We've got to start saying, yeah, we'll have a go at these things to see if mm-hmm. they work. And I, I think personally... Um, this is the greatest time we can possibly be doing that because I, I don't believe anybody coming out of this this pandemic will be criticised for implementing change and trying to do things a bit differently. Yeah, we might get it wrong, but if we get it wrong, is that the worst thing that can happen? You know, as long as it's not costing you millions of dollars, obviously. Um, if we want to implement some change, I I think now now's time. Uh, and I believe, you know, talking to, to Gavin Kirkman at the PGA, Nick Dassey, Kim Felton, the guys who look after tournaments, they're of the very same view. Um, we've now got an opportunity to, to, I guess, have a real review of what we do around here in the tournament golf space, but not only the tournament golf space, everything we do in golf. Um, you've only got to look at what was happening around the country while we we're uh, in lockdown, other than Victoria and to some extent the Northern Territory, people were still playing golf wasn't a competition every week, which we, we've come accustomed to, but they're out there having a hit, being part of their community and socialising. And, and, and let's change that sort of the narrative around what golf is. I, I saw something, Clades, you, you sent through around it. Everything's got to be big. You know, well, it doesn't. Uh, in Queensland, memberships have been growing in this period of time because we were the sport that was open. Um, and we're the sport who we all know can rebound from COVID probably quicker than any other community-based sport. Uh, golf courses are a great open space. We already know we're back out playing four balls all around the country. Um, if that's not if that's not some sort of imprimatur to promote our sport as the one to be playing and, and getting some change in there and the social and the family nature of it um, that leads further into tournament change and those sort of things, I don't know what is. Pretty well said, I reckon. Hey, are we going to get um, – well, we have two Australian Opens played or two Australian men's two men's Australian Opens played in 2021 or are we gonna, is it going to be February uh, forevermore, do you think? Yeah, look, to, Andy, to be honest, unsure. We haven't even made a decision on whether November will or won't go ahead. Um, we're in the hands of the government to a lot of extent on that. Um, the, the one thing that Visit Victoria is certainly saying to all events, not just ours, um, between sort of July 1 and December, we want um, a review. Uh, we want you to consider other alternatives if there are no crowds. Um, they don't want investment going into events that aren't going to be maximised in terms of their return. 
Uh, so we're we're in that process now. We're we're reviewing what the Aussie Open looks like, um, whether it be November, whether it be in February, whether it be not on at all. And that's something else we've got to consider: is that is it is it a cancellation rather than a, a postponement? Um, we we certainly don't want that to be the case if we can help it. So we're looking to other options and working with the Victorian government on that. You must have a date, though, Simon, and you don't don't feel like I'm asking you to give it sure. to me. You must have a date where you have to make a decision. Yeah. By, yeah. The, the Visit Victoria would no doubt like to know before the end of June. Okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, are there anything else from you three learners before we let this bloke go? It's been uh, a bit now, I reckon. A lot to chew on there, Andy, I reckon. Simon, thanks for being part of it. Uh, we'll look back on this and there'll be a thousand things to think about and talk about, and you've added um, a whole heap into the mix, mate. Appreciate your frankness and being on with us. Really, really appreciate your time. No, anytime, guys. Always happy to chat to you, four luminaries. Good on you. <laughs> Simon Brookhouse, General Manager of Golf Ops, uh, joining us. And, oh, God, listening to... Uh, I think is Ali going to join? Have we got one more. Whittick is going to join us at some stage. There's a million things here, and we've got we're going you know pretty long. But the more I listen to this, the more I listen to everybody who's come onto this thing, and I'm probably a bit more able to say this than a couple of you blokes. But this need for for uh, an overarching body <laughs> to tell golf this is how it's going to be done as opposed to getting all of them. We've, so we're seeing it. We're seeing all those – in the course of this conversation, there's a, we're seeing all the, the different elements, and they're all great, and they love the game, and they're all, their intentions are all absolutely in the right place. But if we're going to make – if this game's going to be open to making, uh, like Simon Brookhouse just said, say yes rather than no, if we're going to be open to reforming the game in Australia, streamlining the economy of it, and that's a really crucial part of this. Let's not let's work out how how much less money we can spend on administering the game and get the same, if not a better outcome, which I think is actually possible without having seen the bottom line of all of the various bodies. But um, I'm I'm more committed to that need for a golf commission uh, at the end of all of this than I was at the start of it. You're laughing at me, Hazy, but no, no, no. I think no. You've you've actually come up with that thing at the start of the play and had all the conversation reinforce it, which is probably a fair sign that it's a, you know a really good point. Um, you know, there's so much going on here in this conversation. It's probably it could be construed as dry, but there's a lot of nuggets being thrown by Pom and Kaz and Nick and Simon and hopefully Ali in a second. But you know, when you start, you can see. I hope that the the person listening to this podcast or on radio can hear that there are genuine desires from people to actually get something done. I don't reckon that's the commonly held belief. Um, but as Peter O'Malley said way back, you know, if we can bury, uh, what, I'm not sure the exact wording, but bury the egos involved. Yeah, there's, yeah. there's a desire to get some stuff done. I thought some of the stuff that Simon was getting at was fascinating to me. He's clearly put a lot of thought into it. The, the other thing we should talk about is Clover Moore trying to take, she wants to take nine holes of more park. I mean, and what, Golf Australia's role in lobbying governments to ensure that public golf doesn't just get taken away because someone's decided to plant 100,000 people across the road in a bunch of high-rise boxes. It's a very good point. We touched on this last week. Um, it's a very good point. 
it does feel like public golf, particularly in a suburban, for want of a better, for, but but it does feel like it's under pressure. It feels like it's under pressure in Melbourne and Sydney. Yeah, and there's, you know, I think there's a place for, if you're going to take some golf, fine, fine, not ideal, but okay. But you can't just take it and not invest in what's left. I don't know what's happened at Sandringham, how much better that golf course is for the investment of the Daniel Andrews and the government. So if you, if you want to take it, you better spend some money on making what's left over better. Clay, golf is um, golf. Australia is on notice. I reckon um, this this is just cropping up more and more. There's there's been other other places as well where it's happened. It happened in Brisbane where they tried to take a facility there. It's happened at Ringwood here in Melbourne. It's happening at the moment, I think, or it's been in discussion. Albert Park uh, public course in Melbourne. They tried to take nine holes from that. It's just. This is going to be a big issue going yeah. forward, and golf, golf better be ready. That's all I'd say. You, be, you better have your arguments ready to justify. You're going to have to justify why you're using that big area of space, and and it is justifiable. Don't get me wrong, but just be ready. Yeah, well, yeah, you know, and, and if you want to take Albert Park, which is not great, then spend on what's left and make what's left over much better. But don't just take it and not invest anything in the, in the holes you leave. And, and the other thing, from a purely selfish point of view, having dealt with it all over the country, the input local councils have onto the vegetation control and management of golf courses is ridiculous. You've got people who don't play golf, who don't understand it, making decisions about vegetation on golf courses that, that they're not qualified to make. So the best thing that governments could do is take any control local councils have over golf courses completely away. So, so is there... it's a different question if you want to sell a golf course like Kingswood. But if you want to cut down a tea tree at the lakes or a mahogany gum at Yarra Yarra or whatever, you oughtn't have to go through a massive rigmarole with a council to get, to get that done. <clears throat> so is there an argument? Can there be compromise on all of this? So the couple of the courses we mentioned, we're talking Melbourne, Sydney here probably more than the other cities, and I apologise if I'm... Well, Brisbane's felt the pressure already of hanging on to metropolitan, you know, inner suburban golf courses. But if we were to give away six holes, if we were to turn them, and you've spoken about nine and 12 hole courses in the past being, mm. there's not enough of those around the place, Clayton. We used to have one down at Sorrento and it was fantastic. It was a great summer option. It was full. People were playing down there, down at Sorrento, down forever. Yeah. Um, but, but we lost that. If, if we were to give a bit of ground on a couple of these suburban golf courses, but the undertaking was given, we're going to put it in the hands of golf people and make these nine or 12-hole courses better, much, much better golfing experiences than, than they are, is that a compromise that golf could live with in the cut and thrust of the battle for land and space? Yeah, I think so. I mean, when I started playing golf, I started playing at the nine-hole course at Camberwell. It's called Bullion Public, which they're yeah. putting a freeway through. It was a – I didn't care. I didn't know if it was a good or bad. I had no idea. It was the best course I've ever seen. <laughs> I didn't care about whether there were no bunkers in the first hole or they weren't very – I didn't care. It was just a place to play golf. So there's clearly a, a really important place for places to play golf. But having played for 50 years, I think there's also a place for a, a, a role to make it better, better condition, better holes, just, just more fun, more interesting. And – the par three course at Studley Park's a disgrace. I mean, it's dead. 
So <clears throat> either flog it off for the $100 million it's worth and invest that money in golf or spend some money and fix it, but don't leave it the way it is. It's terrible. It's terrible. And Andy, I had, um, you know, as always, and this is great, I love the different the different points of view on different topics we talk about on the podcast. An email from a gentleman called Chris Clark during the week. You talked about the need for competitive neutrality, which is something I hadn't been aware of, but there's actually government policies on competitive neutrality um, that he pointed out to me saying that for all the money that goes into public clubs, it's to the detriment of the private clubs. Uh, it's not necessarily a position I agree with, but I understand his, <laughs> you know, his reasoning. Um, my my point on that would be that if you're a young inner suburban kid in, especially in the bigger cities in Australia, if you take away Moore Park or if you take away Royal Park, where do you actually go and learn to play? Where do you actually have your first experience with golf? Um, I do understand Chris's point. Um, he asked me to bring it up. Um, it is a factor that we, you know, sometimes we miss the government technicalities on these things. But um, you know, I think it overrides. Like there's so many kids as Clates goes uh, with 100,000 extra bodies in that Zetland area in, in Sydney. Uh, where will they have an experience with golf if, if more park gets shut down? Because I'm not sure if they're going to be the ones bursting down um, to pay $5,000 or whatever it is at mm. one of the – one of the royal 30, cities. Yeah. Well, 33,000 to join the lakes down the road. Mm. And you can't get into the Australian. So, you know, Royal Park's an incredibly important golf course in Sydney. Yeah, and, 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 it, and it does 60,000 around. You know, it's also one of the busiest courses in the country. Yeah. So, to, to think you can just take it away is outrageous for where golf is. So, of course, you would say that. Yeah. And we've got to look at it, as Blakey says, from a different perspective. We've got to have a good answer. Um, to all the problems that are going to be thrown at us. and But it's very true in Melbourne, Sydney, um, Wembley Park in, in Perth. Obviously, Victoria Park is a bigger issue in Queensland right now. Um, but, yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of um, things to consider. But, you know, we need to, we, as Blakey rightly points out, if we don't start taking this on, um, it's going to become a bigger problem. And if it's not in your neighbourhood now, if you don't live in inner Sydney, you don't think it's a problem, just wait because it is coming your way. Yeah, outrageous uh, thing about vegetation too. Sorry, as quickly as no, you drive up, you drive up the road from Karen up to Yanship in Perth, and they're bulldozing the most amazing sand dunes and putting houses on it. You can't pull a tea tree out. You can't pull a tea tree out in Sydney. Yet in Christian Porter's electorate in Perth, they're just flattening the most beautiful sand dunes in the country and putting houses on it. So, uh, how, how does that work? Well, Rio Tinto's allowed to go and bomb, blow up forty-six thousand-year-old. Um, you know, indigenous heritage sites, and and they can do that without getting any. Yeah, it's just don't we, you know, it's crazy. It's ridiculous. Can't believe it's the same place anyway. No, no. Um, I think we have the best to last. I, I think we have <laughs> Ali Whitaker. I can see, <laughs> I can see it. I can hear her, and I can see her name's bobbed up on our Zoom screen, and I can hear her laughing in the background. Al, it's uh, there's been a lot of stuff bowled up. Uh, how are you? Good to see you. Hey guys, great to see your, uh, your mainly smiling faces. That's as good as we get from Clates. Yeah, <laughs> there's been a load of stuff bowled up. Uh, men's, women's, amateurs, grassroots, public, private. There's all sorts of stuff that's been bowled into the mix here. Uh, we've had O'Malley, Dasty, Lunn and Brookhouse all part of it and we're delighted that you're here to finish it off with us. So the blank sheet, we're going to reform golf. We want it to be the best it can be when we come out of this thing uh, going forward, and we're inviting everyone to put their 10 cents worth in and tell us what they'd do if it was up to them. So you're as thoughtful about the game as anybody I know. Well, give us one or two things that you'd throw in 
um, if we were to kind of reboot this whole thing? I think for me, like the, the key is that this is the, a great time to have those conversations. Obviously, it's a, socially, it's a shocking time um, around the world, but this is this is when the minds can come together. Everyone's home. We can get everyone's opinions quite quickly. Um, but I guess one of the things for me that I look at the way that things are being done separately, and I think that there is a time where we just look at golf and we go, all right, we are going to change this with a blanket decision. And I think... You know, obviously, Golf Australia and, and the way that we're looking at things with events like the Vic Open is brilliant. But I, I actually am I'm all for just making the new norm going forward um, in terms of having mixed events. It is not going to happen until it happens. Someone has to do it first and it just needs to become, I, I, I think, the new norm in particular in Australian golf. Um, and I think there's a lot of support from that on the guys' side as well. And, and I say that because in so many realms of, of golf, the men, in theory, have the upper hand financially. So that's why I phrase it that way. But um, I, I think, you know, you look at the way even the culture in women's golf in Australia, you have all of the big names come back. Like, have you ever heard Minji Lee go, no, nah, it's too hard, or Suo, or some of those girls, and, and they just get it. And I, I think that that is a culture that if we can inject that into Aussie golf, then we'll see more guys come to the table um, potentially from abroad as well and, and see more big names back home in Australia. Ellie, we had a great conversation before, the player series. I'm sure I know whether you've heard about what you know, Nick Dasty, they're trying to put together. And Clates raised a really valid um, point after we spoke to Nick about the women and the men playing against one another for the same purse, on the same course, at the same time, and how to set the course up so it doesn't become too easy for the women, do you see that being um, an, an, an issue that we can easily overcome? I, I do. I think it, there's going to be a lot of trial and error, if I'm honest. Um, and one thing that I want to hit off the top with this is there are, every time something's posted online, there are people that say, oh, but they're playing off shorter tees. Would you ever put a female boxer in the ring with a guy? No. Why is that? Because of the physical advantage. So I I just have to say that off the top because that really gets me going. Not acknowledging the fact that there is a physical advantage to men 99.9% of the time um, is is just silly to me. So I'm going to smack that because I'm sick of those comments. And, you know, Ali's rant's over. (laughs) It's nice for Hazy to have a moment off, I'm sure. (laughs) I, I do just... I don't know. I, I mean, for me, it's it's going to be trying to work out whether two six irons are the same, you know, and finding golf courses that have the correct tee boxes to make it roughly even. Um, you know, there's an argument that, say, a guy hitting a six iron has more spin, more speed, therefore more um, margin for error than a woman hitting a six iron. I get that. So there's going to be some work to be done uh, throughout that. I think they did a really good job um, in Jordan with the three tours mixing that together. They spent so much time interviewing and asking the players for input. So this is what people don't see. Like every day players were asked what club they hit on this pathway, what club did you hit, what club did you hit, and there's a big recalibration. But I'd I'd love to see that. Like Mm. imagine the headlines of 
one of Australia's best female golfers getting into a playoff with one of Australia's best male golfers. Like, right. tell me that that's not going to catch fire and, and, and just start getting the minds turning of the people that are, are paying the checks because they're kind of the ones that we need to, to focus on as well. But also the grassroots of, um, of people wanting to get into the game. So this goes back to you, it's a whole lot of stuff that you were saying earlier, Hazy, and it's and uh, it's not novelty golf. It's not that at all. This is concept golf. And if Australia became uh, Australia's already being well regarded for what it's done with the Vic Open, clearly that's a it's a tournament that other countries around the world want to replicate. If we are the country for six or eight weeks of the year in amongst our Aussie Opens and our you know PGA Championship. If we are the country that has five or six or seven other events that are concept events like the Vic Open and like these players, who, if that's all we're after, we're not asking our players, men and men or women, to this is going to be what you're going to do for the for the other ten months of the year around the world. But when you come back here, this is what we're going to ask you to um, participate and get enthusiastic about and support. I would think that most professional players would relish the opportunity to play the game, chance to make some money on great golf courses, but doing it a bit differently. Oh, I would think that would be such a welcome deviation from the norm. I, yeah, I'm, I'm totally with you. And the, the, the thing is, with the Australian tour, in terms of the professional side of things, we have an advantage in being small. So we don't have to redesign an entire year's golf. We're not talking to 40-plus no. companies and trying to pander to everyone's wants and needs. We, we can actually reinvent the golf before the season. You know, it, that's all it takes is kind of a year to, to start conceptualising things and start building the hype. And, and, it, and it's a great tour. My gosh. I loved playing the ALPG tour. We go around and play the Pro-Ams and go and everyone would sit you know, in the clubhouse after with their time teams and stuff. That they're, they're the memories I remember. And mm. and regenerating, because they're kind of lost along the way in a lot of uh, the bigger tours, those moments. But we can create a new culture here. Mm. Mm. Um, thoughts on any of that before we ask Al for maybe one more idea to throw into the mix? Blakey, you, you've been asked to cover the game for a long time. Would you, would you embrace... These I haven't heard. You know, Clates has sort of raised his misgivings. Hayes, he's put his stuff out there. And then, then, have you got a have you got an automatic reaction to this one way or the other? Yeah, I'm I'm in favour of that. I like I like the you know getting away to some different ideas. And also, we've seen that it works so well with the Vic Open. It just has such a good feel that event. So I can't wait for an Australian Open to be played in particular uh, with the women as well. Um, I just want to see it. Sooner rather than later. Yeah. Al, give us an, have you got another thought that you want to bowl up on? Not putting you under any pressure here, but is there something else that, you know, the game should entertain, you know, as it sort of works its way through all of this? I think for me, um, I'm, I'm liking the intrinsic thinking that a lot of um, the, the golfing bodies are having around the world. I'm liking seeing them invest in their own players um, in various ways, you know, uh, Austria just had this two-man, two-women um, skins game on the weekend, which is being broadcast in prime time TV, main, main TV slots in Austria, like 8.40, you know, getting it out there. Um, 
two of the girls, uh, Christine Wolf and Sarah Schober, played against Bernd Wiesberger and Matthias Schwab. And they played, but they actually played like one against one, one against one. It was a round robin event. And so you're going to see guys and girls playing off together. And it's just, I, I applaud them for that because I feel like a couple of tricks have been missed um, recently in terms of the way that those kind of things have been covered. There's, it's so easy to chuck, a, a, you know, a, either someone in the TV crew or have a female golfer playing amongst those, you know, those kind of skin match skins matches, even if they're charity, event, charity events. So um, I've got to give a big tick for them. Uh, the European Tour working out what they're going to do going forward, how they can keep generating income for their players and their staff, um, playing six events in a row where you can drive from one place to the other, having all of the hotels on site. It is pretty much once you get through that gate, you're in the gate. We don't, we don't want you kind of going out and trying to mix too much um, within reason naturally. But I, I just feel like there's some some good solutions um, coming out of this and and I and it's given me a lot of hope, really, mm, mm. For, for the next six months of golf in particular. Well, it's been a bit of a theme of this chat. I've got to say, going nearly two hours and it's been, it's been wow. a bit of a theme, hasn't it? That, that you know, that, that let, let's continue to run with this. Like, you know, the Vic Open's open a world of possibilities. We've seen the growth in that thing in 10 years. Um, you know, this is, this is the tip of the iceberg, really. If there's a willingness to embrace and, and try things. Don't say, say yes, not no, like Brookhouse was saying before. And if it doesn't work, well, what are you lost? We just go back to what it was beforehand. But I think there's you'll, you'll be interested, Al, that this has been very much a, um, a theme that's run repeatedly through the conversations that we've been having the whole way through. So um, where, where do you go next? What's, have you worked out? Does your world look any clearer to you in the next sort of upcoming few months? Um, it's hard to tell. I'm trying to work out currently what's going to happen with the broadcasting over the next few months. Um, but quite honestly, like time at home for me is never wasted. Mm. Uh, I obviously I'd rather that life for everyone was normal and we didn't have to deal with this, but, um, I'm just logging the hours with the, with the family because once it kicks up again, I might be gone for, you know, two weeks of quarantine, six weeks on the road, and then another two weeks of quarantine. And then there's 10 weeks gone where I can't, Mm catch up with them so um just taking it day by day like everyone else and uh, and looking forward to to what's to come because i'm starting to be far more optimistic about the the sporting landscape and that we can maybe do this safely and and still kind of check the boxes for people that just love live sport well we'll wait and see what it looks like in our neck of the woods uh, in the next sort of six to 12 to 24 months and beyond thanks for being part of it today Good oh, on you. pleasure guys i look forward to uh seeing everyone else's answers i'm sure there's some practice in there yeah it's pretty see early stuff thanks Al. allison Woody, well known to everybody here at inside the ropes uh giving us her view and that that's become a theme hasn't it like you know the Vic, we've mentioned the vic open so many times uh in this podcast today but Take what it's got and let's expand it. Let's let's run with that here in Australia and see where it takes us. So any final thoughts before we wrap it up? It's There's a bit to take on board out of all of this. I'd be really interested in Blakey's thoughts, to be honest, because, I mean, uh, he's the sort of, I guess, independent arbiter who hasn't just been ranting on about commissions anyhow. Uh, <laughs> give us his opinion on this. Um, I think um, some really good ideas have come out of this. Um, some of them are easier said than done, but gee, we've been talking about you know unification of golf f- 
for a few years now, really. So I think that's a big theme. The mixed fields is a big theme. And you know, one thing I would say just as a general comment is that, um, you know, golf, like everything else, has taken a big kicking from the pandemic. But there was a lot of heat around about whether we could play golf and why we couldn't play golf and people like Sam Newman going on. The only good thing that I can think of out of that whole thing is that golf means something to people that they could get so fired up and so angry a lot of people because they weren't allowed to play golf in particular here in Victoria. Um, at least it means that they're talking about the game, that the game means a lot to a lot of people. And if you look around the courses now, right around the country, you can't get a, a bloody slot. Um, <laughs> oh, it's impossible. Yeah. It's unbelievable how hard it is to get on the courses. So the game is much loved and, you know, it, it's, it's embraced by Australia very strongly. So let's hope that the, the, a lot of us, you know, in the game can get it right. Well, Clates mentioned this early and I made a note of it because I know when, or maybe it was with Peter, I can't remember who you said it with Clates, but you said, you asked the question, who cares about the tour? And, and Blakey's right. People love playing the game of golf. There's a critical mass here in Australia of people who love playing this game enough. We've got to capture somehow whatever, whatever we come out of this looking like, the, the showpiece events need to capture the imagination of golfers. We, we need to get, you know, media needs to be interested. We need to convince media that, that there is a, a reason to send, have a dedicated golf writer on a daily metropolitan newspaper, put golf tournaments on television. You know, like let, let, let's let's not let's make it easy rather than hard for the game to be. Sorry, let's make it hard rather than easy for the game to be kind of overlooked. Um, I think that's a really that's a big challenge and a really really important one. It like, is, yeah. Well, it was that the age yesterday put out an article about it was a travel article about the leading tourist destinations in Victoria. I asked about five people, and one guy mentioned the national. There wasn't one mention of. Royal Melbourne, Kings and Heath, two of the top 25 golf courses in the world, let alone the Sandbelt in, in its entirety. Not one, I mean, no one mentioned it about the, you know, the features of the, 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 the tourist attractions in Melbourne. And I get their private courses, but there are lots of members. They're not that hard to get on. Everyone knows, not everyone knows someone, but you know, they're certainly more accessible than any of their equivalent courses all around the world. And no one thinks to mention that that's a significant thing about Victorian tourism. It's amazing. They just because they're so unaware of it. And that's it's true fun. around us. That's yeah. true around Australia. I know that, you know, Adelaide courses are, you know, again they're private, but the the great ones they're private, but they're accessible. So, yeah, I, I, to, you know, John Carroll is a university professor friend of mine had a great line about there are two things in Australia, two man-made things in Australia of any worldwide architectural significance. Sydney Opera House in Royal Melbourne. <laughs> and everyone knows the Opera House. Everyone knows how important and how great that building is, but only golfers understand why Royal Melbourne is such a significant thing in the world of golf, not just in Australia, but around the world. And people who don't play golf have no clue how important that place is. Yep, yep. My last, my last point before you sign off, Andy, is just I think it's really important that whatever we do, we do it strongly, we do it quickly, and we steal the march that we have for me, that's um, the unity in women's and men's golf tournaments together. We're, we're the world leaders. Let's not lose that position. 
Been more of it. Yep. Uh, Blakey, good to see you again, yeah, my yeah. friend. Get on again. Thanks, guys. Enjoy the hits. Clay, it's always good to see you. Enjoy, Thank you, mate. Enjoy, Enjoy the it. rest of the life. Yep. Hazy, well done. Uh, there's a bit there. So um, hopefully people have enjoyed um, absorbing it all. I'm sure there's going to be a thousand ideas at Inside the Ropes uh, is the place to go. There's an underscore in there somewhere, but um, <laughs> people will find it. Uh, let us know. I mean, if you've got ideas, if you love any of the ideas, you hate them, let us know. We'll um, hopefully get a whole lot of feedback out of this and we'll address all of that next week. Uh, and if you've got any other ideas that you'd like to bowl up, email it through to uh, Golf Australia, send it through to us on our social media platforms, um, and we'll um, pluck out a bunch next week and address all of those on the show. Um, well done to you, Justin Falcon, too, for uh, liaising back in the central command position and making it all happen. Thanks to Peter O'Malley, Nick Dasty, Karen Lund, Ali Whitaker, and Simon Brookhouse for all being part of it. Uh, good to see you, folks. We'll be back next week to do it all again. This has been Inside the Ropes, episode number 166.